On today's episode, Neil and I sit down with legendary shooter Jerry Michalik. We talk about Jerry's upbringing and what got him into shooting. We talk about the evolution of shooting sports and the action pistol specifically. We talk multi-gun. We also talk about the upcoming zombie match here in Nebraska, which he'll be attending. We really learned a lot from Jerry, and it was a privilege to sit down and talk to him. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hornady Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Swerzik. I'm pretty excited today, back in the saddle, and we're talking shooting today. Across the table, joined by Marketing Director Neil Davies. Neil, thanks for coming on. Yeah, buddy. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm pretty excited about today's guest. We've got a gentleman who's just been absolutely dominant in the shooting industry. And when you say a gentleman who's been dominant, those are separate things because this guy, every time I've talked to him, is just a gentleman. He's always polite. He's always humble. But he is an absolute champion when it comes to pulling a trigger. Yeah, he's a legend. And uh, an amazingly nice guy. Amazingly nice guy. And we've been uh, lucky enough to have him shoot for Team Hornady. So please join me in welcoming Jerry Michalek. Jerry, thanks for coming on with us today. Oh, my pleasure. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I think I think it will be as well. And as we've done on this podcast, I like to get a peek into, into your past before you were a, a champion competitive shooter. Uh, where were you born and, and what did you grow up doing that led you into shooting? Well, I was actually born in Texas, and I stayed there for every bit of a week. <laughs> and then my folks moved into Louisiana, so I was raised in South Louisiana. And one thing about Louisiana, especially in the South, hunting is a is a is a heritage. Everybody hunts and fishes. So when I got old enough to get a BB gun, you know, I had to had to get out there and go after it. So shooting is just a lot of fun. Once you once you shoot just a little bit of any kind of a firearm, uh, you're just ready to go. I mean, BB gun, slingshot, bow and arrow, whatever. It's all about getting uh, that projectile to a target. Were your parents shooters? Were they? Did they shoot much themselves? My dad was raised on a farm, same as my as my mom. So to them, a firearm was just another tool they had to do their to do their daily chores, and uh, that was just about it for them. You know, my dad was a, a war veteran, and uh, so he appreciated firearms and what they could be used for, and just kind of handed it down to me in that kind of a format as a tool. So it was, yeah, just kind of a cultural thing. Um, in high school, doing any sports or just, you know, working and, and shooting? It was just working and shooting. Uh, when I uh, when I was in junior high and high school, with uh, the swamp one but about two and a half miles from the house, so we pretty much stayed in the woods all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a great upbringing to get immersed in firearms and bows and, and all that kind of stuff to get you shooting. So you, you get out of high school. Um, when did you you take a, a special interest in competitive shooting? How long did that take? Well, 1976, uh, my little brother and I always hunted, you know, and shot whatever we could. And then we met a, a gentleman in, in a local dump. And that's one thing about kind of a generational thing. When I was a young guy, the local dump was a was a was the shooting gallery. And there was open dumps just in every city. It sounds kind of trashy, but that's just the way people did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we we met a gentleman there by the name of uh, Ben Ashmore. And he was actually drawing a customized Swenson 45 out of a holster and shooting these steel targets on a, on a stick. And I thought that was the neatest thing to see somebody 
actually competing. And then he introduced me into uh, practical shooting. And, uh, and since that moment, you know, we, uh, we built guns and we started racing. We shot revolvers and just uh, took it from there. So did it, were, you, were you married then? Did that become part of your business at that point in time? No, I was just working and shooting. So uh, fortunate enough to, uh, to, get, to do both as much as I possibly could. And, uh, yeah, kind of took it from there. So what paid the bills back in those days? I was a maintenance mechanic. I was a, I was a millwright by trade, and I did oh, wow. that for like 15, 15 years. So my background is a, it, I was an it, it, industrial mechanic, a certified welder. We did, uh, we did multi-craft work. So if it was broken, we fixed it. You know, anything from a 6,000-horsepower uh, turbine down to a, to a, to a to a toilet i mean anything that's cool we we have yeah. uh we have guys that work in maintenance at hornady and i'm kind of envious about their job because they get to fabricate and make things and fix fix stuff that you know there's no really there's no schematics for some of the stuff they do so it can be kind of fun but challenging I'm, I'm sure yeah most of most everything we did was on a time-oriented basis if it's not running they're not making any money so you get to you get to learn how to improvise and adapt and uh and it kind of fits into the competition where a lot of guys are just drivers. They don't really understand the product, the gun and the ammunition combination, how it works. So I'm the kind of guy, you give me a new gun, I'm going to take it all apart and see what makes it tick and what to look for in, in the long run. So the, the actual mechanical part of a firearm, to me, is actually very much intriguing. So when it goes down in a match, I know how to get it going and get it, get it back in the fight. That's really cool. That really is. Yeah, and a millwright, an incredibly uh, technically deep uh you know in the, the term mill if, you, if you've ever used a mill uh putting those things back together and the gears and and yeah doing anything on a lathe with the gear reductions going on in there is just incredibly technical and probably lends itself like you said really well to the gunsmithing aspect uh that naturally probably comes along with being a competitive shooter at such a high level that was one of the fun things about hunting we built our own boats we built air boats we built inboard uh mud boats uh we all that stuff boat trailers we uh we, we were johnny on the spot if it broke we fixed it or we made it and that was kind of the fun part of it it's a it's a whole package and like when i started shooting i was casting my own bullets we make our own bullet lubricant uh and just just everything we did it ourselves it was kind of a learning curve so was it revolvers primarily in the beginning is that what you stuck with for a long time obviously I actually started with a, a Colt uh, Gold Cup. Okay. But one thing about South Louisiana, either you're standing in, a, in, in the mud or you're standing in a, in a swamp and the water's going to be like knee deep. So shooting a semi-automatic pistol is a, is a great way to lose your brass. And a revolver, you can shoot out of a boat or whatever, out of an airboat, you don't lose your brass. So you can reload it. So I kind of went to the revolver as a, uh, as a go-to. One, because the guns were a lot cheaper. And everything back in the day, I had to pay for. So, yeah, the revolvers were cheaper, the ammunition was a little bit cheaper, and you could shoot it longer for the for the same amount of money. So I just kind of gravitated to that. Yeah, very very practical choice. Very practical choice, and and having that technical background and being a high volume shooter just lends itself to you're going to be a hand loader, mm. probably out of necessity uh, more than enjoyment. When did you get into the hand loading side of things? Well, there again, my dad was a farm boy. And when I was in 1968, he bought me one gun. He said he was going to buy me one gun. He bought me a pump 12 gauge to hunt ducks with. And then he showed up one day. He didn't hunt or or he didn't reload. But to him, 
if you owned it, you should work on it. And one day he showed up with this mech shotgun loader and he put it on a tape. He said, if you want to shoot, you better learn how to do yeah. this. So I started off with a single stage mech. And then when we got into handguns, it, you know, single stage press and just started bullet wow. holes and all that kind of stuff. So we even made our own shot back in the day. And uh, yeah, we did everything. You yeah, were. I've seen your, I've seen some of your reloading videos and lifestyle stuff where you're using cement mixers to clean brass. I mean, this high volume stuff that he's working on. Well, and talk about being completely in, immersed in what it is to be a shooter uh, and, a, and a marksman and a rifleman and a, and a pistol shooter. You just from start to finish, you're doing everything and you're deeply involved with the mechanics that actually make a firearm work. And and like you'd mentioned, Jerry, having that background you're not just a driver you, you know you can build the race car as well and and i think those two things uh lend to a much deeper appreciation of actually what you're doing it is i i i uh i enjoy the whole the whole uh cycle of it and if i was just a shooter i don't know if if i could uh, enjoy it as deeply as i do and that's one of the fun things about it if it's not working i want to find out why so i'll come in the shop and i've got a lathe and a milling machine in a garage and a welder, so I can pretty much add some baling wire. Yeah, do you have some JB weld too? <laughs> Dremel tool. And I, and I got duct tape, yeah. so <laughs> we can make it happen. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So that was you know, early on, you know, in the mid seventies. You're starting to get into the competitive world. When did it really turn serious for you, where you thought, not only is this something I enjoy, but maybe I could make a career at this kind of thing? Well, uh, I never really thought of it as a career. Uh, the hunting was really fun, but when hunting season was over, the guns went quiet and that's not good. So to, to keep the noise level up and the, and, and the excitement level up, we started shooting competitions. I met Ben Ashmore and he was holding some local competitions. So we started shooting locally and, uh, that was 1976. So it was just the fun of, you know, staying around a gun and doing, doing your passion, you know, and, uh, building guns, loading ammo and, uh, trying to make what I wanted to do from the very start was to take a revolver and run it faster than anybody has ever run it before. So I spent a large part of my time just racing. Mission accomplished. And, and see where it, where it would go, which sounds pretty simple, but it was, it, was, it took about 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> overnight success. Overnight success. Yeah, well, overnight, then, yeah. At some point, That's you what, you, uh, you had a... a relationship with the Clark family, right? So, I mean, that, that right. I don't know if everybody knows. Um, Jim Clark Sr. Yeah, I mean, how did that all come, come to be? And obviously your your marriage and everything like that. Yeah, I married into family in uh, 92. And of course, Kay was, Kay was a range brat long before I was. So when she was a little kid, you know, she would go pick up brass and be with her dad on the range and put, uh, pace targets, you know, for the, uh, for the Bulldog guys. And she was also in uh, ROTC, <clears throat> and she went into uh, high power, uh, high power silhouette. And then when action shooting came around, she was she was just starting to shoot action shooting shooting when I came along. So we got together on that, and she's quite the accomplished uh, competitor. I don't know how many national and world titles she has, but uh, she is extremely, let me say, humble about her shooting. You 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 wouldn't even know that she actually competed. She has all these uh, wins behind her, and uh, yeah. Yeah, it is definitely a family affair. Uh, yeah. Yep. Husband, wife, daughter, 
you know, the whole the whole package. And then obviously the, the Clarks and, and Clark Custom Guns. I mean, that, and they are just down the road from you, right? Is that right? Are they right there? Yeah, about 150 yards to my right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's helpful when yeah. you got a custom gun maker. You probably got some tools over there you can use from time to time. Yeah, it's always good to have a backup. <laughs> yeah. That, that's one thing good about, what, well, good about, one thing I really enjoyed about being this close to uh, G- Jim Clark Sr., but there's not too many things I could show him that he hadn't seen before. Yeah. So he could kind of shorten the learning curve and uh, get me going without wasting a lot of money. And that's what I try to tell people who want to get into get into competition shooting is just don't run out and buy a bunch of stuff and show up at a match. It would be a lot better if you just went to a match and say like you wanted to shoot an op- open pistol. So go there and talk to some of the open guys. See their equipment, what kind of ammunition, holsters, uh, optics. Yeah, it'll save you a lot of time and money. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Yeah. So what was the what was the transition and kind of the evolution for you of the the pistol competitions that you began shooting and, and obviously got really proficient in into uh, the different sports and when, you know you would have been around for when those sports kind of really came to uh, mainstream popularity. What did that transition look like in your career? Well, the uh, there were so many different disciplines in, in action shooting. So I focused on revolver, and then when multi-gun or three-gun became very popular, I branched off into, into the three-gun game. And I, I had been shooting three-gun back in the 80s, back when Soldier of Fortune had their convention in Las, down in Las Vegas. I didn't really go for the convention. I, I went for the competition because it was a, it, they were the, really the first multi-gun match, rifle, pistol, shotgun, and they had a $10,000 prize. Which back then, you know, no, nobody else was, you know, there wasn't any cash money in the, in the game. So I shot so- Soldier Fortune from the mid 80s, and then it started evolving. And then the, in early 2000s, mid 2000s, uh, they had a circuit going for, for three guns. So I just kind of blended myself into that because, you know, I was a duck hunter basically long before I was a pistol shooter. So shooting a shotgun and reloading it and uh, stuff like that came pretty natural. And we shot a lot of 22 rifles. That's one thing we did when we were young. Man, I can remember on a weekend, you know, buying a carton of bullets or two cartons. And they didn't, it didn't last long. <laughs> we did a lot of 22 rifle shooting. Yeah, and then uh, you used to compete in this uh, Sportsman's Team Challenge too, right? Yeah, the Sportsman Team Challenge. That was, that was, another, that was another level of 22 rifle proficiency there. And what's interesting about the 1022 evolution, though, that the, the bow barrel, like you see, that's common. Uh, I think Jim Clark Sr. was the first one to actually build a heavy barrel 1022. Okay. And it, and the Sportsman Team Challenge kind of needed that application, and they also, as good as that platform is, they are they were able to bulletproof it with better extractors and better bar- barrels and trigger assemblies. Back then, you know, when I was in high school, you could buy a 1022 for like 95 bucks. And now a trigger group, a target trigger group is like 250. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things have definitely changed in that regard. But, you it know, I, I'd like to think that a lot of the products have, have improved with uh, the ability to use computer-aided machinery and things like this. You know, not as much uh, time spent with a file like it used to be back in the day, but there's still something about having a, a gun that's been smoothed up by somebody. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when you're talking about computers and stuff and ammunition, uh, and when you mentioned Jim Clark, one thing that came to mind was when he started his business in 1950, 
He started his business on converting 38 Super 1911s into 38, uh, 38 Special Watt Cutter guns. Uh-huh. And the whole reason behind that was I had asked him that when I first met him. And what he told me was back in those days, in the 50s, there wasn't a target-grade bullet available in 9mm mm-hmm. or 38 Super. So they converted them to a, to a known standard, which was a 38 Watt Cutter. And the ammunition was readily available, and it was super accurate. You could buy it. The hard part was trying to get that pistol to shoot a blunt nose cartridge. Yeah. 38 special, you know, overall cartridge dimensions. It's hard to get them to feed correctly. But when you when you got it all working, you had a super accurate 1911 to shoot bullseye with. That's cool. Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. It is. Yep. Yep, 100%. So when, uh, when, when three-gun really came along what what era are we looking at is that early 90s where the multi-gun stuff really started to take off 2000s yeah. is when it really kicked off i would say yeah it was uh it was a lot of fun i i was hoping it was going to continue uh and there's still a lot of diehard three or three gunners out there uh their, their equipment is is still evolving the shotguns the pistols and ars the optics and the ammunition it just uh what would have won 10 years ago now is not not going to be a winning combination. So that's the fun of the sport. And that's one thing I'll have to try to do as, as a competitor is to not fossilize. Yeah. I've been, I've been doing this since 1976. So I go out to the range with my equipment and technique and I want to believe everything I'm doing is wrong. And there's always something better. Because once you fossilize, whether well, they're going to pass you up, and you, you you're not going to be relevant anymore. That's a so. that's a gem right there. Wow, yeah. yeah, that's a that's a good piece of you advice. Can't, you can't fossilize. I had a chance to meet a gentleman who's a uh, patent holder. I think he got like fourteen hundred patents. And one thing he told me was, "Never fall in love with your own invention." The the once you perceive something to be correct, your mind quits thinking. Wow. And uh, you're going to fossilize. So what his, his his thought was, once he filed for a patent, he knew in his heart there was something better. He's going to work on it. So as, as a competitor, I have to do that too. I'll go out and shoot a, a certain technique or a stance or ammunition, and I'll shoot it. Then I'll try exactly the other way and see what happens. And somewhere in the middle is going to be real. And you have to be able to do that and not go out and think that you have a perception of knowledge. It's all application when you're shooting competition. So if I can't apply myself in a winning fashion, uh, I can have all the all the perception of application, but it has to be me on the line applying ability to the to the to the to the uh, to the stage. Yeah, that's and that's yeah. true in in so many sports and in the the sport that I compete in the most. And I know Neil does as well in the precision long rifle game. Uh, I mm-hmm. always say the best shooter wins the match. It's You're never going to cartridge yourself, reload yourself. You're never going to optic yourself into really performing better. Those that perform yeah. the best, doesn't matter what equipment they use, they'll probably beat you with just about anything because <laughs> they they are simply the best. They practice the most. They Like you said, they apply uh, themselves more and better than the people that they're beating. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter their equipment. I mean, equipment comes into play at that tiny last little bit of threshold. But for the large separation between mid-pack shooters and the elite, those elite-level shooters will kick your butt with a factory Remington 700 and 308. I still contend there's some genetic <laughs> ability that's like, one of, you know. One of, the things that, that, uh, one of the things that stands out in competition, when you, when you mentioned the uh, Sportsman Team Challenge, when it was held down in Florida there, one of the first competitions I went to, 
uh, had, we had our 1022, so I went on a practice range, decided in to just do a little rattle battle, check my magazines. And I came up to the practice range, and there's this this gentleman over there, older than I was, and he was shooting this very classic rifle stance. He was shooting a heavy barrel 1022. And I started shooting. He looked over me and kind of smiled, and uh, I looked at him, and he was, you know, shooting this very precision-style shooting. So I stayed there quite a while, and when I left, he was still there. Come to find out, that was Lone Wigger. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Lone Wigger, if you find out who Lone Wigger is, he was just like the dominant yes. 22 rifle, you know, three-position shooter that ever lived. And you know the old saying, first to the range and last to leave? Lone Wigger. Yeah, it was him. He was, he's a legend. That's, yeah. That's what made him who he was. Super nice guy, by the way. I had a... I, I, uh, I probably knew him for 20-something years because of the Sportsman Team Challenge. And that's, you know, when it's really sad. You got people as talented as, as Lone's Wigger, and the average shooter does not know him. Yeah. Which, which, I try and, which I find to be kind of devastating in my heart because he was such a good, dedicated shooter and won so many medals. Uh, it's, it's just like Walter Walsh. Uh, I, I had asked Jim Sr. one time, what's the best shooter in the world? This wasn't long after I had met him and he said without hesitation Walter Walsh so when I researched him he was he was the real thing yeah <laughs> these are some pioneers that yeah were, you know yeah, created the foundation for what would come after yeah you know I want to uh, grab on something real quick uh, Jerry you mentioned you, uh, your equipment has changed so much you know over the years and equipment that you were winning with five ten years ago you know now doesn't look right. quite the same uh, if if you would let's when you first start started in the in the let's say multi gun sport, what did your right. equipment look like from a firearm, ammunition, maybe bullet, holster kind of setup, and then how has that changed into what you're running today? I would I would say on the on the AR part, the, the center fire rifle part, the big thing was the advancements of optics, like the one by six razor vortex scope that I use now. You have a power selecting knob on it or a lever, and and on one power it has a it has a reticle that that's lit in the middle, so you can light it up the, the actual intensity of the uh, the red dot in the middle, and on one power this scope has like a hundred and fourteen foot field of view, and when I first got into three gun there was no optic that had that, so it was like looking through a straw when you're trying to shoot a target. Oh. With an optic like that, I can shoot from point blank range and flip it up to six and go out to whatever six seven hundred yards without any problem. And also the quality of the uh, red dot sites or the uh, sites of that nature, uh, the actual product has gotten has gotten so good and, and it's so reliable that uh, the battery life has increased drastically. That's one thing the average shooter might not appreciate. You know, when, when red dots first came out, there were these long tube deals about big as a straw about this yeah. big. And it was like looking through a straw. Now the now the screens are flat. The optic quality is super. Battery life is good, and the durability of the product is getting smaller and smaller. And battery life is getting longer and longer. So it's just uh, that part of the the AR platform. The quality of ammunition. I'm sure you've seen that grow now. You know, with the match grade ammunition being being readily available at a, at a modest price, uh, that has taken off. And on the shotgun part. Uh, the guns have evolved into being more shooter friendly. How fast you can load them? Oh yeah, oh, the loading yeah. speed obviously a, a big limiting factor. Yeah, so like the Mossberg, the 940 JM. Uh, my daughter Lena and I 
Uh, she had more input on that because she does the uh, the quad loads. So Mosberg, you know, came here with some engineers and they looked at our guns the way we had butchered them on the on the military, <laughs> modified <laughs> the hand guards and put these little pieces of aluminum here and there, and they actually made the product now compatible right out of the box. So and this is something else that I've noticed in the in the gun industry in general. It used to be a firearms manufacturer would make something, say like a say like a 38 Super 1911 back when Jim was in his in his uh, in his days in the 50s and 60s. They made a 38 Super, and it was just basically a 1911. So Jim would take it, do all the customization to it, chamber it for 38 Special, accurize it, trigger job, blah blah blah, everything sights, and then and then market it. Now you see gun companies are willing to not only sell a base model, but also a competitive race model. Mm-hmm. So they're actually listening to customer input. It's not like, I'm going to make this, and you salesmen go out and sell it. So now they're making exactly what you want to buy. And you see that across the board in just about every product. Hornady uh, wraps up their ammunition to the competitor really quick. The quality of their ammunition, uh, I can't really, well, I can't reload as good as what I can buy. But I can I can load more cheaper yeah, yeah. if I can load. So that's what I'm looking for as a competitor. Is uh, and the pistols like we just talked about the accuracy potential. Now we have optics on the slide, so the only thing you have to worry about is the is actually the the barrel fit to the to the slide and not the slide to the frame. So you can get an accurate pistol. My M&P pistol now with the red dot on it with an aftermarket barrel, it'll shoot two and a half inches at 50 yards. With me fitting the barrel in a garage with it with a file. Wow. So yeah, I mean, really, I think I think you said it right. I mean, you can't fossilize, and that that the same thing holds true for manufacturers. Yep. You can't just sit on what you yep. did yesterday. You've got to you've got to you've got to make new products. But I think that the thing for us at Hornady, it's unfortunate because there's a lot of things that take place in our production area that we can't really talk about because it's proprietary. But there's some significant advancements. <laughs> that are made uh, behind, you know, the scenes here, like a little change here, a little change there, but these make drastic improvements across product lines. And, you know, uh, I know that we do not rest on our laurels. We are continually trying to improve, not just by introducing new products, but by introducing new uh, manufacturing processes and, and procedures that really help to create a more consistent, more accurate product that we can hopefully make faster yep and that that one of the big things that i've noticed in my you know almost 10 years here is uh the things that we've done like you've mentioned the processes and the manufacturing controls uh that make you know the the product just a little bit better or maybe it's a little bit faster to make but it makes for a more consistently accurate bullet across not just a lot number but lot to lot to lot to lot. Yeah. And then you get years worth of lots of bullets created and those small improvements on the processes make for a more consistent bullet from bullet one to several million. Um, that's been neat to see that, yeah, you can get a good batch of bullets and you make 200,000 of them, but the next 200,000 and the next 200,000, the, the consistency across the entire production life uh, I've seen increase. And that's been a neat thing to see. And when you shoot millions of rounds like jerry uh that consistency is is tangible you know you can see that consistency and you have and you have to listen to feedback from uh you know sponsored shooters and and customers you know great story i had one time (laughs) sorry getting off subject here but there's there's a company that hunts hogs at night with thermals 
And this was back when, and they were using AMAX bullets. Um, we don't market our match bullets for hunting purposes, but uh, they, they were using AMAX bullets. And, and he contacted me, and he needed 178 grain AMAX bullets for 308s. And I said, well, we don't have that. We got 168s. He's like, no, that, that won't work. I was like, what? You know, I've shot a fair number of pigs. I mean, it's 10 grains difference. But they shot thousands of pigs a year, and they shot them with 178s, and their goal is to get them before they leave the field. They need to pick them up. So 178s, uh, <laughs> you know, out of 2,000, let's say, 850 would be dead right there, and they, all, they shoot them in the exact same spot every time. But and only a small percentage would make it to the field edge. But with 168s, that number kind of flip-flopped. Mm-hmm. You can't argue with those kinds of numbers. So when yeah. a guy like Jerry is shooting as much as he does and he tells you this, that, or the other thing, you better listen. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's pretty good input right there. Yeah, yeah, I would never have guessed that 10 grains of bullet would, would have made that big of a difference. But when they have a, a test sample that's that large, then – you, you pay credence yep. to that. You yep. know, that that's, that's real. Yep, 100%. And one other thing that I think is important to note, at least on how Hornady's product relates to, you know, the sports like uh, Jerry shoots, uh, on the pistol bullet scene, we make cup and core bullets. Then and, and that's where you take copper jacket, lead core, and you swedge it up and you make a bullet. And, and I know from a lot of high-volume shooters, they like to use, you know, plated bullets, for example, because they're, much more cost effective uh, but the accuracy potential of a plated bullet is just not as consistently accurate as a cup and core swedged bullet and you know we've got our hap bullet line hornady action pistol uh, designed specifically for accuracy from a pistol and these things they start and finish in one single line one concentric line of tooling makes this bullet from start to finish and that's how we make our match grade rifle bullets that's how you make the most accurate bullets in the world and we do that for our competitive pistol bullets and so you get levels of accuracy uh, from a you know a short fat chunk of of bullet material for lack of a better term that you know with other technology just isn't possible and uh, we can do that now in incredibly high volumes incredibly fast rates of speed and the accuracy is just uh, it's next level. If you if you were shooting cast or plated bullets, which you can make accurate, um, you'll see across the course of a big average that a cup and core bullet made from start to finish on one concentric line of track, that you'll never get accuracy like that from, from yeah, anything super else. consistent. Yep, and that's something I think you've probably witnessed as well, Jerry. That's one thing I, I found back even before the Hornady sponsorship was if we were building a gun and if it didn't shoot an XTP bullet well, there was something wrong with where you fitted the barrel or the gun itself, uh, and then the hap is, is basically the XTP without the without the flukes in it. Yep, yep, exactly. Right. It, had, it it has that same accuracy potential. That's what I shoot most in competition is the 115 hap. It's just it's just a go to. It shoots flat. It's accurate. It's it's pretty economical. Mm-hmm. I've shot plated bullets, and something one bad thing about a plated bullets bullet is sometimes the plating will come off into into comp. So you have to be a little cautious. Uh, I've had good good luck with plated and some questionable luck, but the, the cup and core always is a standard. Another thing I found was uh, interesting was that 147 nine millimeter bullet you make the full metal jacket. Yep, that thing is a super accurate bullet. Also, even though it has a uh, an exposed base with lead on it, 
being a being a jacket is drawn to the rear usually means it's not as accurate. But that bullet has proven to be uh, really good in every in every platform that I've shot it in. So yeah. yep. Well, and that that one forty seven compared to any other bullet in nine millimeter has a much longer bearing surface, and when you extend that wheelbase out. Uh, that generally gives you a more forgivingly accurate bullet when you have a longer bearing surface, and uh, that stands to reason. And it's probably nice to shoot. You can run that thing, uh, you know, at a at a moderate velocity, kind of yep. break that recoil and find a nice sweet spot where your gun, you know, your return to battery is 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 good, and yep. you have great accuracy. Uh, you can run them below the speed of sound too if you're into shooting suppressed. Yeah, I'm impressed with that with that bullet. It shoots as accurate as a 147 XTP. Oh, good. And usually a hollow point will outshoot an open base, you know, full metal jacket, right. just because of the quality of the manufacturer on a hollow point. It, it you know, the flat base of a, of a jacket versus the lead in the, in the rear. So I was pretty impressed with that overall. That's one thing uh, with your 55 grains. I want to bring that up. A lot of 55 grain 223 rounds are marginally accurate. And having shot uh, 223, you know, in competition since the since the 80s, a lot of the FMJs you come across are not that uh, stellar in accuracy. But the one you make, and I don't know how, what kind of standard you you keep them to, but apparently, you know, minute of angle or better, uh, just about any gun is uh, pretty pretty much expected out of it. That's good yeah. to hear. That's what I found. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, all of our all of our 223 stuff is you know has has improved over the years again with those processes that, that just continually improve so when those things happen it, it, they happen across all of our presses and ultimately you just keep making better and better products yep yeah right on and yeah we're in the business of making accurate bullets and accurate ammunition you know you wouldn't be in business for nearly 75 years if if you were okay with yeah, with yeah. making inaccurate stuff for yeah, sure. Yeah, we want to keep making if we can make it just a little bit better, a little tighter group, a little more consistent. We try to do that. We don't just have a press and it's set up and it's been set up since you know, we started in 1949 and makes it the exactly the same way and we're happy that we sell it. No, we we will continually try to improve yep. those products. Yep. Jerry, I wanted to ask you cuz you you've been a part of the the Hornady family I think since before I started with the company when did you and Hornady start supporting each other in the shooting sports Ooh back in the, in the late 90s I had a sponsorship and then it kind of fluctuated and I want to say it's been the last 10 years or more Yep yeah at least maybe maybe 12 Yeah and uh maybe I have four. to say I have to give Jerry a plug so anytime he's at any one of our trade shows that we go to and he does a guest appearance the line to get to see Jerry is longer than anybody else that we have there. So yeah. <laughs> everybody knows Jerry. I mean, I grew up watching you on uh, shooting uh, USA, you know. I mean, I, I watched you when I was in the Marine Corps and the AFN network when I was stationed in Okinawa and stuff. And that was always a pleasure to watch you doing your speed shooting, you know, and you've been doing that for years. Yeah, I think it really represents well – uh, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, that he is such a gentleman and such a good steward of the sports in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, you represent them really well, and you represent our company well, and we're very lucky to have you. Most definitely. And well, you're coming here for the uh, you're coming for the zombie match next week. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's good. And this is what what zombie shoot is this the. Oh, I don't know. I, this, I, I lose track of it now, but 12, 13, something like that? I don't know. We've had a couple of them. Yeah, we've had a few of them. Have you, have you been here since the beginning or picked it up in the middle? 
Uh, I think I've made some of the very first ones. Yeah, he's, right he's been to a lot of them. I don't them. think I missed, but I don't think I might have missed, but a few of them. Is uh, this one of your preferred matches because it's a little more relaxed? And we, I mean, we, the engineers that set this zombie shoot up, they really try to make it kind of a circus, and yeah, it's, uh, a circus. it's it's kind of a, yeah. a spectacle to watch. Yeah. Well, they they kind of make it a circus, but you know, you can take that to any level you want. Sure. I don't want to say circus because that you know the, some of the stages are, are very unique in the way that they set them up and run them. I saw some props there that I've never seen before, and if you if you want to race against the top guys, you you can or you can just shoot and have a good time. Just come out and shoot. They have a good price table. It's kind of relaxed, but you can take it to any level you want. And uh, the people in that part of the country, I find very nice to be around. So it's just to me, it's just a uh, time to go out and shoot. And I visit with friends and. Uh, I still want to win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you've won it so once gonna, or twice, as a matter of fact. I'm gonna, Maybe more yeah, than so twice. I'm going to go for the win. Yeah. But, uh, it, you know, in the end, I can I can say I've got trophies, and uh, and I I don't really ever look at them. I don't know. If, to me, it's almost like that the gentleman with the patents. Yeah. Once you win, once you win something, you really don't want to look at it yeah. because it's, it, it puts an expectation on a performance. And it makes you look at the end of it instead of actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like I'm gonna go to the zombie. Say say I won it ten times in a row. I'm going number number eleventh, and I'm all, all I'm thinking about is I won it ten times. So now I got to really do this and I got to do this. It just takes the fun out of it. I don't want to know that. I just want to go there and say hey, I'm gonna shoot the match, have a good time. All my guns are gonna run. It's gonna be a good experience. Yeah, and that really uh, I heard a saying here a while ago that that fits this really well it was the man who likes to walk will go further than the man who likes the destination mm, that's pretty yep. true. yeah and it's again, yeah. similar to that if you enjoy the whole process the mechanical side of it the reloading the and then obviously the, the competitive nature uh, yeah you'll go far and so for everybody listening that's not familiar with the zombie shoot the zombie shoot is a three-gun match that yeah. hornady puts on uh for over a decade now yeah uh, it happens right here in grand island nebraska at the heartland public shooting park and uh the theme is zombies fun. the theme the theme is fun the th- yeah the, the theme, theme is, is fun. fun and it, it and it obviously it is zombie theme but we wanted to make sure that it was kind of a, a carnival fun shooting atmosphere and if you're a if you're a new shooter, you can come and shoot this match and have yourself a great time. Run what you brung. So yeah, it can be a three-gun match. It can also be a, a, a PCC PCC baby. match if you wanted it to be. But so for for a new shooter, it's it's something you could come and do and have a good time and not feel overwhelmed. But if you're an accomplished, amazing shooter, you can still go there and shoot fast and be challenged and be challenged. Yeah, exactly. But the the goal was to get as many people out to just come shoot, not be intimidated, see a, see shooting in this carnival atmosphere because shooting is fun. We want it to be fun, mm-hmm. and that's what it is. So with the zombie theme, it makes it more of a carnival yeah. experience. Yeah, and you see a lot of folks out there bringing their family. Their kids are, are yeah. coming along, and it's great to see that kind of stuff. And we'll normally have people in some kind of zombie costumes and fun things like this. So, yeah, it's, it's an adventure. Yeah, that's one thing. One thing about the zombies match, I think it's it's mostly associated with action shooting. I find anyway, if someone is new to the sport, they just want to come out and look, yeah. and talk, see what it's all about. I haven't seen a shooter yet that would shun someone that's interested in, in getting into the sport. No, that's the truth. I mean, three gun. Every time you shoot three gun type matches or any of that, I mean, and PRS too, people always welcome you into those sports and. 
I think for a lot of folks, Jerry, you could probably echo this, but a lot of people get intimidated about all the the gear you should have. But, you know, if you've got one gun, two guns, you know, somebody's going to loan you something, help you with equipment, help you through the process, go have a good time. And, you know, you're not going to win your first match. So you're, you're going to go there and have an experience and learn. Maybe there is some gear that could help. But ultimately, just get your stuff out of the closet. Get it out of your gun safe. And, go and, use it. Yeah, go shoot. You yeah. know, don't leave that thing sitting there dormant. Go go use it. That's yeah. what we want you to do. That's a good point that yeah that you brought up, Jerry. That yeah, if you're in the area, come and watch the match. It, yeah. It's a yeah, hoot. It's fun. It is a blast just to watch. And if you're thinking about competing in any shooting sport, the the shooting community, the competitive shooting community, is really um, open arms to a lot. You know to they, yeah, they want to help you with gear yep. selection. You want to try this, try that. You know, you want to use my piece of whatever, go ahead. And that's something that I've really enjoyed uh, when I got into the the competitive shooting world in 2013 time frame was that the people that aren't that way quickly get weeded out. Yeah. You know, yeah. like they don't hang around very long. And the ones that do, that are, that are super encouraging and really helpful, they stick around. And I've been seeing the same people at PRS matches since my first PRS match, you know, nearly a decade ago, I, I'm still seeing them, and it's because that, that and it's social, you know, exactly. I mean, you, you probably see some of your pals there, and you know, you look forward to seeing them. You see their family, you see their children grow. Which Jerry, mm-hmm. I think the world has gotten to see your children grow, which is fascinating. Yeah, you know, um, Jerry, I wanted to ask. So, the zombie match is a good example. You've got a match coming up, and that's in two weeks now. Yeah. So. You're two weeks out from from a match, and you're a competitive guy and a, and a high level competitor. What do you do to prepare for a match? Do you have a standard procedure, or you're accomplished enough that you just you know what you need to work on and and you hone that? I'm gonna do a little host of work, shoot some plate racks, uh, go out on the rifle range, make sure my zeros are exactly what I want them to be. Um, make sure I got all my equipment. I have a pre-flight list. Pre-flight I checklist. Call- okay. And I have to put my hand on every one of these items before it goes in the bag. Not assuming it's going to be in the bag. Yeah. But I got to touch it because the last thing you want to do is come up to it, come is go go to a match and not have all your pieces and parts. And I've done that. I went to a match one time, a three gun match, and didn't have any ammunition. Oi. Yeah, that was kind of an eye opener. Yeah. Luckily, a friend of mine, <laughs> I would leave some ammunition in his trailer, so I was able to <laughs> scrounge up enough to shoot the match. But that's when I was shooting like 20, 24 promotions a year that kind of blend into one another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a pre-flight checklist. The same thing with my equipment. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to look at all the springs in my in my shotgun magazine, how, how that feels. Uh, all my uh, scope mounts have a witness mark on them. So I know if something comes loose. It's just uh, from having done it so long and also, also being the mechanic of me, when I pick it up, it has to prove to me that it's ready to go. Yeah. Proper prior planning. You know, that's yeah, a big I want, I, Yeah, I want it to be good. I don't. Uh, I have to physically uh, justify it being good. My not, not just throw it in the bag. It's good to go. I'm going to clean it. And what's good for me here on the property, I can go out and do all these things and sight in and check. I can step out my door right here. i got a bullet trap where I can chrono and test ammunition. And I have a 400-yard range, just a couple hundred yards from here. So I can go do all this, clean my guns, and then step outside and then test fire them after I clean them. Okay. That saved a lot of grief. Yeah, no kidding. And like Neil said, proper prior planning. Um, is, oh. 
Do you shoot a bunch of rounds leading up to a match, or are you are you dry firing a bunch, or kind of a combination of both? Well, I'll, I'll go out and practice a little bit, uh, a little bit, and if I if I perceive a weak spot, I'll spend some time on it. Okay. But if everything check, everything is checking out, and I'm and I'm thinking I'm going to be, you'll never be proficient enough in your mind to ever compete. That's just the way we are. So if everything looks good enough, it's a combination. You don't have to win any stage to win the match. You just have to shoot consistent, and your guns have, and your guns have to be consistent. You can't have a malfunction. So my guns might not be the most trick, but at the end of the day, I'm hardly going to ever have a malfunction, and that's a great thing. You can win ten stages and fall on two, and your guns not working, you're not going to win the match. So I'd rather have consistency performance. At the end of the day, is going to win the match. The ego wants you to win everything, and that usually <laughs> doesn't work. I would think, Jerry, that over the course of your career, if anybody would be able to talk about the modern advancements in trigger technology, it yeah. would be you. Yeah. You know, we're we're filing with a stone. I'm to... yeah, so spoiled, you know, now uh, being a younger guy and and less yep. than ten years into the industry that it's it's turnkey for me to just grab an aftermarket trigger and throw it in there and everything's great um, but where you started shooting in the 70s competitively uh, and then to present day uh, the amount of trigger pulls you have between just dry fire practice and live ammo you've probably really seen an incredible evolution just in trigger technology it is there's drop-in triggers available i have a i have a timney in my mnp uh, 2.0 pistol it drops in at three pounds wow I do have to yeah. say something, though. So speaking about triggers and things, uh, you know, rest in peace. But our, we, we worked with Mike Voigt for a long time. And, and Mike is, for those that, that know Mike Voigt, he's, he's a true gentleman and a great guy. And, uh, but, man, you give, him a, you give him an STI 2011 and with, hmm. I don't even know what he had, a Swiss Army knife maybe and a, you know, yeah. <laughs> a nail file or something, and then boom, yeah. hands it back to you, and it is the smoothest, best trigger you could ever get, which was, you know. And you know you know that's, Mike, obviously, or knew Mike, obviously. He's a great guy. Yeah. That's one, one good thing about 1911 pistols. That's what makes a 1911 so competition-worthy is the trigger. Yeah, yeah. Everything else about it can be changed, but that straight back, short, light trigger is uh, what everybody wants in competition, and uh, it has that platform. That's the heart and soul of a 1911 is the trigger. Rest yeah, 1911 Air15, they're kind of like the Chevy 350. You know, you can, yeah, got to have one. It is. Yep. You do a lot yep. with them, too. Yeah, it's just, and there's so many parts and things you can do with them, and, yeah, they're, they're, they're just amazing. That's really the, really the beauty of an AR is uh, I can come in my shop here with just minimum tools, and totally disassemble it, put a new barrel, hit space it, you know, check the hit space, put new trigger parts in it. In just a few minutes, I've got a totally re rebuilt gun ready to, ready to go play. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty fantastic that you can do that. But you can also make it so fantastic that that it won't run. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah kind of like it's like it's like a race car. You know, if you get it, if you get everything tuned just perfectly, it's amazing. But you know, maybe yeah. uh, the timing's off just a little bit. Boy, it doesn't want to run well. Yeah, so I kind of keep mine a little bit simple, but uh, it has to be a hundred percent. Yep. So, number one, Jerry, with all the competition shooting that you do which you know maybe you're you're throttling it back a little bit than say a few years ago do you still find time to to get out in the woods and, and do some hunting 
Yeah. Uh, fortunately for me, my wife likes to hunt and fish. Yeah. And do a shoot hog, thermal hunt, whatever. Uh, go frogging or whatever. Go play with an alligator at night or something. She's she's game. She's she she wants to go. So I'm kind of fortunate. I can do and go what I want to do with someone I want to do it with. So it's uh, to me, it's been a, it's it's been a wonderful uh, thirty something years now being married. I couldn't think of it any other way. So we like to get out in the woods. We go to Texas and hunt deer. We've uh, been to Oklahoma and uh, yeah, we'll go shoot some prairie dogs this year. And and if you know a spot that needs prairie dogs taken off of, let us know. We're pretty good at You're it. You're the man. <laughs> You're the man. Pra- prairie dogs should be shaking right now if they know that this is <laughs> going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had you in Nebraska here. This has been a couple of years, but you came up to Nebraska and uh, hunted with some Hornady folks for, for whitetail. Yeah, we did. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, I was just with some pictures the other day about that hunt. Yeah, with Marv. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, oh, Marv. Great I guy. do have a question. Got, so I've, I've seen some photos with you and uh, our good buddy Robert Brantley. So are you interested yeah. in doing any of that kind of stuff, shooting some PRS things at some point? Uh, shooting uh, competition with him? Yeah. Yeah, matter, matter of fact, first time I met him, we were on a hunt with him. We went to shoot some hogs. Oh, yeah. And we did some cold deer shooting on a, on a lease he has over here about 60 miles from us. And, uh, yeah, Rob is super nice guy, by the way. He's a fantastic guy. He's extremely talented and very understated for his ability. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he wants me to come do a, some PRS stuff with him this, this fall. I might have to step out. Yeah. I actually shot a, a rifle-only match. Jim, Jim Clark Jr. and I, in 2000, we shot a, a rifle-only match in uh in texas and we won it and i was the high overall and i shot a gas gun but the only reason i i actually did good at it uh little jim i call him little jim with a lot of respect jim jr uh w- was into uh that style of shooting so he had all the dope and was able to help me out tremendously with finding targets and that's one thing jim little jim had with a super eye he could find targets and call distances so all i had to do was pull trigger and he and I won the won the team cha- uh, championship there. It was kind of cool. That is fun. That is awesome. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask this question here. I kind of saved it for the end, um, and I'm not sure your answer, but I have a pretty good idea. But, you know, you've got records in everything from uh, semi-automatic 9mm revolvers all the way up to 50 BMGs. Uh, you know, you've, you've got some shooting records with that. And, you know, you just mentioned that you went out to rifles only and won, you know, your first match out there. There has to be a core set of fundamentals that you apply regardless of what firearm you're shooting. Um, and I, I just want to hear your insight. Is it sight alignment, sight picture? Is it trigger control? What are, what are some of the fundamentals that you see that, that go across all firearms that just work no matter what you're shooting well trigger pull is always going to be more important than side alignment that's just the way it is more with a pistol than a rifle but it's still trigger you have to trigger what you see mm-hmm. and you can't have an expectation of a performance you can only do it per shot uh, you know like an action uh, shotgun or an action pistol stage and it's 30 shots the one you're about to make is going to be the most important you could never miss fast enough to hit. You know, so you have to shoot. You have to shoot the match, not have an expert. Once you put an expectation of a performance, that boat anchor is so heavy you can't pull it. You know, here, hey, watch this. Hold my beer. You know, watch. You know, <laughs> kind of a thing. 
and you've hung that expectation of a performance. You can only do the performance. You can't uh, you can't expect uh, an outcome. You have to earn it for every shot. And one thing I, I really enjoy about shooting, I, I still get excited when I shoot. So the adrenaline is your friend. A lot of guys uh, tremble at the thought of uh, being nervous and everything. I'm, that's what I want to be. I want to be a little bit on the edge and feeling like I'm excited and a little bit shaky. And then when the timer goes off, that's a gift. That adrenaline is a gift. It lets you see faster, lets you trigger faster. That's, uh, you know, that's good stuff. Don't waste it. <laughs> yeah. It's like race fuel. Yeah. You got, you got the race fuel <laughs> and then with, uh, you know, reloads and, and, and trigger manipulation and stuff like that, you get enough reps of that in that it becomes your muscle memory. Now you can let your muscles remember and then use that adrenaline to take things to level 11. Yep. Let it, let it ride. That's great. Well, that is, that's, uh, you heard it here first, folks. Trigger pull, more important than sight picture or sight alignment. It always, it always is. Jim Clark Sr. told me that. And uh, give you a little idea how I came across this. Jim hadn't shot a match, and this was back, oh, a few years before he passed away. I was shooting for the uh, the Masters event where they had these apertures. You shot with a twenty two pistol. It was iron sights, metallic sights at 50 yards. And they were 3.7 inches. There was five of them. He had a time limit. So I was shooting, practicing, but my 41 Smith & Wesson, and uh, I could maybe get two, maybe three. And I'd been shooting for about an hour, about ready to give it up. And Jim Sr. passed. He was running his bird dog. He was on his four-wheeler. And he came by and he said, hey, what you doing? I said, well, I'm shooting this, these targets here. He said, oh, yeah. He said, he said, load it up for me. He said, what do you do here? I said, just shoot these five targets. So he stepped up, and Jim hadn't shot competition in, I guess, 20-something years at that time. And he picked up that 41 Smith, and I could see the end of that barrel shaking. And I know the wobble zone was bigger than the target, probably 50% bigger than the target. He shot five, and he hit four. And he handed it back to him. He said, yeah, it sighted pretty good. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> and, and what he told me was, no matter how much you wobble, if you just break what you see, 50% of the time is going through the X-ray. Mm. If you try to make it perfect and you run it to trigger, no, no, no. That's what I was trying to do. I could hold in the target zone, but I couldn't trigger. Yeah. Oh. Always take your wobble, press it to the rear. Good things will happen. Some sage advice right that, there. Yeah, really <laughs> is. That's some sage Jim Senior. <laughs> well, yeah. Awesome. I feel like that's probably a good place to, to wrap this one up. And hopefully, uh, Jerry, you're coming out here for the zombie match. Maybe we could grab you a post-zombie match if you've got time before you got to get back and and kind of yeah. do a post-zombie recap live here in the studio. Yeah, I might be able to do that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, this has been a pleasure, right. Jerry. Thanks for your time today because, uh, you know, Jerry, Jerry is one of the legends within our industry and uh, done so many things. It's just fantastic to be able to spend a little time with you. It's all fun. Yeah. Hadn't worked in 30, 32 years now. So <laughs> it's all been fun. That's so yep. amazing. That is fantastic. Well, yeah, Jerry, great steward of the sport of our brand of the industry as a whole. Can't thank you enough. Ladies and gentlemen out there in podcast land. Thanks for listening in on this one and we will catch you on the next one. Thank you. <laughs>